You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. On a mission of hope. And I hope you've noticed we've read every word of the book. Uh, all of them, not just the interesting or the timely ones, but the confusing ones and the culturally uncomfortable ones. And I do that, and we do that actually, because we genuinely believe that this whole book, not just First Peter, but every word of this book is a message from God for us about how we live our lives. And I know sometimes this book is intimidating, and it feels a bit like looking at a dark hole in the ground, and you're kind of worried that if I go in there, what will I find? Uh, or if I climb this you know, crazy mountain, like how hard is that going to be? Will, this, will I make it? And we would say that it's, it's more like going into a mine, and the deeper you go, the more gold you're going to find. Or that if you're climbing Everest, yes, it's difficult, but the higher you go, the more you see, and the more you experience, the more of an adventure you get to go on. And we've, we really love this book. And I've really loved First Peter, and if you've been with us every week, you know we've barely scratched the surface. There's so much more to this book. And I just thought I would encourage you, I know that we won't all be at this church for our entire lives, that you may go to other places at some point in your life. I would encourage you to insist, no matter where you go, insist that the leaders of your church read every word of the Bible to you, especially the pastors. That they would have the Bible as an essential part of what they do in the work of the church. That's built into who we are. They would give you those riches of scripture and some of the beautiful views that we can see the higher we climb in this book and that we would hold those tightly together. And it's essential to the work of the church. Uh, would you turn with me to First Peter? We're going to be in chapter 5. and We're going to start at verse 6. The words will not be up behind me, so you're going to need some kind of app or book. First uh, Peter chapter 5, we're going to be at verse 6. And this will be the end of our time in First Peter. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Discipline yourselves. Keep alert. Like a roaring lion, your adversary the devil prowls around looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Steadfast in your faith, for you know that your brothers and sisters in all the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. And after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. To him be power, forever and ever. Amen. Through Sylvanus, whom I consider a faithful brother, I have written this short letter to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Your sister church in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Note to the log, Mr. Watt. Engaged enemy frigate at six bells. You probably couldn't tell, but it's about to go down. Stuff is about to hit the fan in this particular movie, which is called Master and Commander. Russell Crowe is the captain of a ship during the Napoleonic Wars. It's a long time ago. He learned to play the violin for the movie. And in the movie, there's cannons exploding and swords clashing and timbers cracking and storms at the edge of the world just roaring and trying to, well, destroy the boat and the people inside it. 
And in this particular scene, there's this calm right before all of that starts to happen. And there's a young sailor who you barely see. He looks like a child. And he crosses eyes with this grizzled old salt who's clinging to a piece of the rigging. And tattooed across his knuckles are the words, hold fast. Hold fast. This sailor who knows a lot about what it means to be anchored and who knows a lot about what's coming in the battles and the storms that are raging as the boat sets out and that they're just about actually in the sea to well, be violently attacked. Hold fast. That's the message of Peter at the end of this letter. Uh, that we would hold tightly, tightly to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we would cling even in the midst of serious anxiety and pain under attacks from the enemy, that we would hold fast to the mission of hope that we've been given in Jesus Christ, that we would not let go of it. I've been told that sailors in this particular period of time, uh, sailors in general are fairly superstitious folks, uh, but in this particular period they used to get these tattoos on their knuckles all the time uh, in the belief that it wouldn't just remind them, but that it actually might help them to hold tighter that it would actually help them to cling just a little bit tighter so that in a battle or in a storm, when your grip might be the difference between life and death, that you would hang on just a little bit harder. Peter, at the end of this book, is saying, resist, stand fast, be steadfast, hang on, let go of everything that is not Jesus Christ, cling tightly to what you have been given, hold fast to it, and you'll make it. And you and I, who are young Christians, and I know not everyone here thinks of themselves as young, but you and I, who are young Christians, compared to Peter, who has definitely seen more battles than we have and more struggles than we have, we get to look back through time at this grizzled old Christian and to hear what's written in his heart and his mind and his soul, to see what he writes with his own hands. Hold fast. And he starts off this particular passage by saying, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. You can break that out for me. You, uh, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and in due time he will exalt you. He will lift you up. That's verse 6. And the image I want you to kind of stick with is one of a, a child running to a parent, a mother or a father. And if you've hung out after church on Sundays and helped us put away chairs and things, you see this every time because they explode out of children's church. And they just come chasing you down. And uh, those of us who are parents in the room, they tackle you and they just want you to pick them up. And for some of them, it's because they're tired and they're hungry and they just can't even anymore. And for some, I wish somebody would hold me on days like that. Uh, for some, it's just because they love you and they just want a hug. For others, it's, it all kind of depends on the day. They, they might be lonely and they just they need someone to reassure them that they're somebody cares about them. Sometimes it's because they're scared and they just want these strong arms to wrap around them and to know there's somebody bigger than them. That's the story of the gospel. Uh, Peter's talking about humility, but he's also talking about handing our lives over to God because God is someone we can trust. Humble yourselves under the almighty hand of God. Hand your lives over to him and you'll find that he really is trustworthy, that he really can well, take care of you in ways that you can't really take care of yourself. Now, when we talk about the life that we've been given in Jesus, we talk about this new relationship we've got with God. We're the God who deals with us really like a father with open arms, who's ready to wrap us up when we're scared, when we're lost, when we're lonely, when we're feeling broken. We really don't know what to do. In fact, actually, the call of the gospel is to give your entire life over to him, to trust him and let him lift you up in that way. And the challenge, I think, is that we learn as young children that we're strong enough to take care of our own lives, I have a two and a four-year-old. They do ask you to pick them up all the time, but they also say, put me down. 
no, I'm going to do it. And you have to watch as an amused, annoyed parent, as somebody says, I can put on my shoes. They're on the wrong feet, and those aren't your shoes. But okay, I'll let you try. You need my help. I'll let you try and climb on that, even though it looks like you're going to fall, and you probably will, and you're not really strong enough to get to the top. Anyway, I, I absolutely will let you believe that you can take care of all of your own needs, even though I've been feeding you and clothing you, and this is really just one small piece of taking care of yourself. Uh, just yesterday, actually, uh, Brent and Jess and I uh, went and got, uh, well, coffee, uh, but the kids got hot cocoa. And we were sitting, and they each got their own cup. And Sam, my son, who's two, uh, kept wanting to hold it himself. And I kept saying, it's a bad idea, Sam. And I would let him hold it, and it would spill everywhere. None of it would get in his mouth. It got all over the table. It got all over his hands. It got all out in his front. He was sticky. He was miserable. He was very frustrated. It wasn't so hot it was burning him. We're not cruel. But it doesn't feel good to pour hot cocoa on yourself, right? And he keeps getting angry, and I keep saying, Sam, I'll, I'll help you. And he goes, no, you! Because Sam's not good at English, but he's very good at communicating. <laughs> and at some point I said, Sam, don't you want to drink the cocoa? And he finally let me help him and hold it with him. And all of a sudden he got the thing that he wanted, which was the very thing I bought for him in the first place and wanted him to have. <laughs> he kept resisting me and wanting to control the situation, and that was the thing that was making a mess, and was ultimately what was driving him crazy. Humble yourselves into the almighty hand of God, and in due time, he will lift you up. Cast all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. When we are holding tightly to controlling our lives, we are not holding tightly to the grace of God. They are mutually exclusive. If you are holding fast to your own control of your life, your only belief that you are competent enough, that you are strong enough, that you are capable enough, that you can provide for yourself, that you can do it all on your own, that you don't need any help, you were not holding fast to the God of all grace, as Peter calls him. And that's a habit. For those of us who've been following Jesus for a while, I think we go, well, yeah, this, this part of my life, that's God's part of my life, and this part of my story over here, and this part of my week over here, but my business life, I've got that taken care of. For my family life, I've got that pretty much well. I can put on my own shoes. Okay, but you actually might need some help. It's, it's quite possible that the God who is so much bigger than you, just the same way that I am so much bigger than my own children, may have resources and wisdom and guidance and well, all sorts of things to offer. The very God that we know that we desperately need in Jesus Christ, because we know that whenever we run our lives all on our own, we make a mess of them, is the God who is saying, you're, you're not really relying on me. You're holding really tightly to the wrong things, and it's slowly and steadily making you more and more anxious. Because the more you control your life, the more you're kind of aware that you're all on your own and that you're not actually perfect and that you put on a brave face and you're sort of faking it until you make it but ultimately it's making you more and more anxious let go of that Peter says actually the verb he uses uh, to, to take it and throw it at God uh, so it's not so much that I'm gently handing over responsibility and control and guidance of my life it's that I'm realizing that this is toxic to me and I just start throwing it away from myself God, take this. I, I want you. I want to hold fast to the grace of God. I, I don't want to hold on to controlling my life anymore because I know what it's doing to me and I know what you will do for me, that you care for me. Peter is someone who has spent a lot of time listening to sermons by Jesus and one of the things that Jesus says consistently is who, by worrying, could add a minute to their life? What is the point of worry? How does it actually help you? Doesn't it just ruin 
everything that you're experiencing now? Doesn't it just make a bad situation worse? Don't you know that God loves birds and God loves grass and flowers and they don't have 401ks and their kids don't get into great schools and they do just fine. And God loves you so much more than he loves birds or grass. Cast all your cares on him. He cares for you. Hold fast to the grace of God that we've come to know in Jesus Christ. Jesus is actually a really good sign that God is trustworthy. Uh, For one thing, he shows us just how far God is willing to go to take care of us. The cross, the grave, hell itself. That there is nowhere so dangerous that he would not go to find you. There's nowhere so dark that he would not go to pick you up, to save you, to lift you out of it. At the same time, Jesus is also someone who shows us what it's like to be a human being who really trusts God, who hands his life over to God, knowing that God will give it back to him. That God will lift him up in that way. If you trust God with your life, you will find that he will lift you up, that he will lift you higher than you ever thought possible, to heavenly places. You'll have a strength that comes from beyond you, a a peace that comes from beyond you, a joy that comes from beyond you, a wisdom that, that isn't your own. And for some of us, this is a really old truth, and it's the kind of thing that we think that we know, and that's why it's so hard to actually do. That it's something we've heard a dozen times, that God should be in control of your life, that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that means that you aren't. And we go, yeah, totally, I know that. And so we don't pay attention to it. And we find that actually, most of the time, I'm the Lord of my own life. And I don't really need Jesus. Hold fast, Peter says. Don't let go of what you've gotten in Jesus Christ. And then he follows all of this uh, beautiful language about the gospel and about humility and about the transformation that God can bring even to our most anxious moments with one of the most anxiety-producing sentences in the Bible. You are being hunted by the devil. Okay. Uh, Verse 8, right? Your enemy, the devil, prowls around you like a lion, ready to eat you. You are being hunted. I'm definitely a little bit more anxious than I was a minute ago. And, And yet what you and I know is that we are not strong enough, actually, to face down enemies that are this big. This outrageous. Now, I know not everyone here necessarily believes in Jesus and is not necessarily following uh, some of the things that, that I'm talking about. And let me just say, we in the church, we believe in good and evil. And we believe that those things are personal. That they don't exist just sort of in abstraction floating out in the universe. That they are always located in human beings or in organizations or in supernatural things. We believe in good and evil, not in a universe that is random. We don't believe in a morally neutral universe where you are someone who's just trying to decide whether or not you want to be religious or not. We genuinely believe that you are actively opposed, that you are being hunted by something truly evil, an enemy that never sleeps, that is relentless and is not merciful, a true villain, someone who cannot be reasoned with, who absolutely wants your destruction and the destruction of everything that God loves. If that does not chill you to your spine, you do not really understand what I'm talking about. What Peter is talking about. That you have an enemy, and he is looking to destroy you. And he will attack you the same way a wild animal would attack you. He'll look for weakness, because that's how lions hunt. He'll look for areas where you're not really as strong as you should be. So how would you attack you? Where are you weakest in your spiritual life? Where are the weak spots in your personal life? Is it your anger? Is it your sex life? Your lust? 
Is it your interactions with your family members and your parents? Is it some bitterness that you've been carrying? Is it the fact that you have a lot of self-hatred from a long time ago? Is it the fact that you don't really know who you are and you're not really sure exactly what the Bible says about who you are? Is it that you're really too busy to pray? Or that you just don't have time to do some of the things that you know we're kind of called to do as people who follow Jesus? I guarantee you, you are being hunted. How would, it, how would you attack you? Be alert, Peter says. Stay awake. Don't get lulled into a false sense of security because we live in America and there are rational explanations for everything around us. Know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are in danger. And you might be thinking, well, I'm not a Christian, and so I don't really want to be because that sounds bad. I, that, I, I don't want any of that noise. That, that just doesn't sound like a good time to me. And I can tell you this, you're still being hunted. Now, that's what we would say. Whether or not you believe in Jesus, the, the devil is still very much your enemy and wants your destruction. Actually, you're all the more vulnerable because you're alone. Because you don't have this mighty hand of God who could lift you up. Because you actually can't hold fast to some of the people well, who also follow Jesus. Uh, Peter here doesn't just say um, hold fast to the gospel of him, but also hold fast to one another. At the very end, those, those kind of closing lines of all these letters, like greet one another with a kiss of peace, you just sort of see that as like sincerely yours. He's serious. And that doesn't mean that we make out with people when we come to church. It, it, this, there's a Middle Eastern practice. If you've ever been actually in a group of Middle Eastern Christians, they will grab you and they will kiss you. They won't, it'll, on each cheek, they will warmly embrace you every single time. It would be like you give everyone a hug when you come to church. Make sure to give someone a handshake and really bring them tightly into community. Hold fast to one another, Peter's saying. You know that your brother and sisters are undergoing the same kinds of trials you are. Sometimes, actually, we're in Christian community, not because we're being attacked and not because our spiritual life is so weak, but actually because there are other people around us who need somebody to hold them tightly, who need somebody to show up to a Bible study for them, who need somebody to show up to worship for them. Hold fast to one another. Again, how do lions hunt? Not just weak animals, but they separate people from the herd. That's the most effective tool of a lion because we are more dangerous together. A consistent message of scripture that you and I, when we really function together, when we really act like the body of Christ, that the gates of hell tremble. And so we would hold fast to one another and not believe the lie that we're all alone in this or not believe the lie that we're a little too busy for worship this week or that things are just a little too chaotic to be making it to our community groups or that I just, I, I don't really like those people in the church because they're really hypocritical and they talk all about Jesus, but I know some of those people and they're just not the kind of people that, that the Bible talks about. Those are lies from the enemy and they are aimed at dividing us. Hold fast, he says. There's a naturalist named Craig Childs who uh, writes for NPR sometimes. And at one point, he was in the Blue Ridge Mountains, or Blue Range Mountains, which are in New Mexico, and they sort of bleed into Arizona. So he was in Arizona and was looking out for local wildlife, and he came to a watering hole, and there was a mountain lion. And he was drinking, and he was just downwind, and so he thought it hadn't seen him. He watches, and it kind of goes, into, he's so excited, he's going to go check out the tracks and you know, make notes, naturalist. And... He gives it some time to sort of disappear into the wilderness, and then he goes around and starts looking down at the tracks, and just before he bends down to really start taking notes, he scans the perimeter, and there's the lion watching him. 30 feet away in the junipers, all he sees are its eyes, and he slowly pulls his knife from its sheath and holds it tightly in his hand, and you would think that the lion would be intimidated knowing it's been seen, 
but he's all alone. And so it just walks calmly toward him, staring him down, growling, daring him to run. Now, Craig knows mountain lions are the number one predator of humans in the United States. If you're going to die by an animal, it's a mountain lion. Those of you who live in Arizona, pay attention when you go on hikes. Because he knows what he must do and what he must not do. What he must not do is run. It's really important. Because they attack from behind. They, they go right at the base of the skull and they snap the neck. And so if he shows the mountain lion his back, he will briefly feel its weight before he never feels anything again. He knows that mountain lions have stalked people for miles. One woman survived an attack and escaped on foot on a road that the mountain lion shortcutted and eventually attacked her again and killed her. So he holds firm his ground and he stares the mountain lion down. He holds fast to the knife and it moves to his left and he keeps staring it down and it moves to his right growling and he keeps staring it down. The mountain lion is daring him to run and he knows better. The mistake when you read the Bible sometimes is to believe that God and the devil are in this genuine contest. There's a real possibility the devil might win. That's not at all the case. Now, the devil is his most dangerous when you believe that he has real power over your life. And he's also at his most dangerous when you believe he has no power over your life. Now, I have friends who believe that every headache, every long line in traffic is the result of the devil. It's too much power to give the devil. He's just, he's not in that much control of your day-to-day existence. And I also have friends who go, the devil, superstitious stuff. It's like Halloween nonsense. Both of those people are in real danger. Real danger of missing that they have an enemy, that he is very dangerous, but he's not nearly as dangerous as he sounds. The roars and growls of this lion are aimed at making you afraid of him. Aimed at making you run away from community. Aimed at making you believe some of the worst things about yourself. Aimed at making you believe that if you just let go of the grace of Jesus Christ and cling more tightly to control of your own life, then you'll be safe. Hold your ground. Hold fast to what you've come to know in Jesus. And then Peter continues and he keeps sort of giving these like closing recommendations to folks. He talks about Sylvanus and he talks about Mark at the end of the letter. Sylvanus is probably helping him write the letter and maybe even delivering it at great risk to his own life. Mark, who he mentions, is probably the writer of the Gospel of Mark. One of the guys who hangs out with Peter and writes down a lot of the stories he has about Jesus. And the things Peter keeps saying are, look, we hold fast to the Gospel and we have this real enemy, but we know that God will make us stronger and stronger and stronger. And Yet, even as he's talking about that in verse 10, he's also talking about how we're still going to struggle and we're still going to suffer. So this is a strange thing. where Peter lives in a world where we've been lifted up by God and nothing can touch us, where we have this enemy, and as long as we hold tightly to the gospel, we'll be okay, as long as we're disciplined, as long as we're paying attention, we're making sure that we're not weak and that we're holding tightly to one another. And yet Peter keeps talking about the church in this strange way, as though the church is really doing something in the world. Not in the the sort of way that we don't really talk about the church in America. The church has this mission that we're struggling, that we're suffering, that we're sort of sneakily in a place called Babylon. That's the place he mentions. uh, This ancient enemy of the the people of God. This empire. He probably means Rome, but he's calling it by a different name. We're in this place and, and everyone's against us and yet he's so confident. 
so confident because the hope that he has in Jesus is so strong that he says that what's going to happen, and this is verse 10, that we're going to be stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. It's four different synonyms uh, for different kinds of strength. My translation said he's going to prepare you and strengthen you and support and establish you. And I think it's hard to have this kind of confidence about the church and still walk into positions of, of suffering. Some of us think that our life is going to be perfect if we follow Jesus. And some of us think that, that well, we, we're following Jesus and it's not perfect, so maybe there, there isn't really this hope that we have. And yet Peter keeps talking about the church that because it's on a mission, things are going to be difficult. I was reading uh, in the Arizona Republic yesterday, there was an article about a church in Tempe that I know. Uh, and in the article, the, the church says that they're dwindling. Uh, the average age of the church is in the 70s, the 80s. That several of the people have, have kind of walked away. Uh, that the people just aren't coming and, and they're worried they're going to go extinct. And so the headline of the article said that they're going to turn to the experts at the Phoenix Zoo. They went to the Phoenix Zoo to try and figure out why their, their church was going extinct and what they could do maybe to, to save it. They, they were really worried that they would cease to exist. And I got to tell you, it was the most confusing thing I'd read in some time that the Church of Jesus Christ would say, you know, we need to, to look for expertise, not in, in scripture, not in prayer, not in you know, the sorts of places the church looks because we genuinely believe that we have something in Jesus. They said, no, we need to turn to the zoo because the saddest thing in the world would be that we would cease to exist. That we, would just, we wouldn't have this community anymore. And I kept thinking, that's not what the church is. I, I don't think you actually know what the church has to offer. I think the reason that you're going extinct is you've let go of something that's really precious. Something that Peter is holding tightly to, that even in a place like Rome, where they are actively killing him, a place he calls Babylon, which is known for actively killing people in the Old Testament. Peter's confident that God is going to make them stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. And these people in the United States of America, where life couldn't really be easier for Christians, are saying, what are we going to do? The church might cease to exist. It's because they've let go of the mission of hope that we have. They've let go for the reason it is that we exist, what exactly we have to offer the world. I want to show you two boats, and these boats will help you, I think, to understand what exactly I'm talking about, what I think the problem is for that church. Uh, these are two boats that are nearly identical. They are the same size. They are roughly the same shape. They hold similar numbers of people. Uh, they float and they do the same sorts of things on the ocean. They're relatively storm-proof in their way. The only real difference between these ships is the mission. One of them is a cruise ship, and one of them is an aircraft carrier. That's the difference. Cruise ship and an aircraft carrier. The question is, well, how are we looking at the church? What do we think the church is? Because I think for a lot of folks in America, we're kind of hoping for a cruise ship in the church. We're hoping for an environment where really there's no sense of mission, that the only mission is that everyone would get what they want, that we would be comfortable, that we would feel safe, that I'd be able to eat as much as I want to eat, that I'd hang out if I want to hang out, or I'd get to do my own thing if I want to do my own thing. And the only function of the staff on the ship is really to, to meet our needs, and most of the rest of us are really just passengers. We're along for the ride, we're spectators, we want to be spectators, and we can sleep if we want to sleep. The aircraft carrier has a completely different mission. Everyone on that ship is on staff. Everyone on that staff, everyone on that ship is intimately connected to the mission. Otherwise, the ship doesn't make any sense. And that's not to say that comfort doesn't matter. It's not to say that food doesn't matter. It's not to say that sleep doesn't matter. We absolutely care about those things on the aircraft carrier because they serve the mission. They themselves are not the mission. It's really important. I have served at churches, honestly, that are looking for cruise directors. 
that are really hoping that what's going to happen is that we will create things that will be fun and I can come or not come if I want to be a part of it. The church that Peter is talking about, the church that we are called to be, the group of people that we are called to be a part of, is on a mission. Absolutely, completely dedicated to a mission that we are called to go out into dangerous territory where we have enemies that will try and destroy us. We have to pay attention. We have to be on our guard because we know that there are people in desperate need of this mission of hope that we're on. That we would be absolutely committed to one another, committed to one another on this boat because otherwise, well, the mission will fail. We need every single person working together in order to accomplish what it is we've been called to accomplish. The church that Peter is talking about at the end of this book, really all throughout this book, is a church in exile, a church on a mission, a church that is dedicated to the gospel of Jesus Christ, a church that is holding fast to what God has done for them. And that's what enables them to withstand the attacks of the enemy. That's what enables them to deal with the anxiety they experience on a day-to-day basis. That's what comforts them and feeds them, but it's also what dedicates them to the mission they've been called to. They hold fast. Hold fast to what God has done for them, come what may. They hold fast in a world that is hostile to what they are called to do. No matter how it looks, even when things seem easy, they hold fast to one another. They hold fast to what God has done for them in Jesus Christ. And as a result, they have something to offer the world. Something that inevitably changes lives and changes stories that invites more and more people into the gospel of Jesus Christ. We as a church, this is the reason that we bothered to go to a food bank yesterday. Because we want to feed the poor. We have a mission. This is the reason that we're constantly talking about how we might love our neighbors more effectively. This is the reason we're always talking about ways that we might tell more people about Jesus. That we want to create resources for you for that. To lead you in that way because we are on a mission with you. But let us never mistake for a moment that that you are also in ministry. That God has called each and every one of us to be in ministry with one another and out in the world. That we are on a mission, a mission of hope. And Peter is writing us across thousands of years of time to encourage us to bear witness that this really is the true grace of God. That we have to stand fast at it, to hold fast to what God has done for us in Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you.